You can open your Bibles up to Psalm 51. If you have one of our Bibles from the welcome table, it's on page 499. This is, again, the, the second to last week in our series uh, called Psalms of Joy, where we're taking a look at how God's compassionate heart for his people draws our own hearts toward him in joyful worship. We, we began this series with Psalm 103, and we saw that God has not dealt with us as our sins deserve, right? That's, that's a huge thing. That's, a, that's a, a major thing that we need to understand. He's not repaid us according to our iniquities. Why? Because he's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in faithful love. And Jesus willingly received what we deserved as the Father repaid him for our iniquities instead of us, right? So then we looked at Psalm 118 and we saw that a foundation of our, or the foundation of our triumph as God's people is the forever enduring faithful love that God has for us through Christ. You know what? One of the things that I love the most about this series uh, that I didn't anticipate when I was planning it is how much these psalms draw us back to who God is. How much they, 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 they force us to think about God's mercy and his grace and his love. As followers of Christ, we need to be reminded constantly of that, right? Then on Good Friday, we looked at Psalm 22, and we talked about the joy of lament. Seems like an oxymoron, but, but we saw how through Christ's suffering and lament on the cross, we have a God who knows our pain, who hears our cries, and who answers our prayers. And then last week on Easter Sunday, we looked at Psalm 30, and we saw that Jesus' resurrection guarantees that we'll always have a reason to sing. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 51, and we're going to talk about the joy that we can find in ongoing repentance because of Christ. And then next week, Luke Holderby is going to finish out the series for us while we look at Psalm 30 and talk about the joy of forgiveness that we have in Christ. So the progression of this series is, this is who God is. This is what God has done. This is what we're to do. And all that leads to joy, right? In Him. It's designed to help us, this this progression is designed to help us to think about who God is and why he's worthy of our worship. You see, the the Psalms are extremely helpful for for that, right? Because they're they're songs written by God's people for God's people to to guide them in singing praises, in praying and, and praising God for who he is. And Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Luke that in along with all of the rest of the Old Testament, the Psalms also ultimately point us to him. And so that means that in Jesus, we see both the fullness of who God is and uh, the fullness of his worthiness to be praised. And that's true even in a psalm of lament like Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51, it's a, it's different, it's a different kind of lament than Psalm 22. It's a special kind of lament known as a, a penitential psalm or a psalm of repentance. Now, the information in the, in the title of it tells us that it's a psalm written by David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had gone to Bathsheba. You can find that uh, historical account in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. You might be familiar with this. And and then he had her husband Uriah killed, right? Heinous and, and grievous acts of sin committed by the king of Israel who is described as a man after God's own heart. 
But rather than confess what he had done, David tried to cover it up until the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to him one day. Nathan came to him, told him this, this parable, this, this story about a rich man who had very large flocks and herds and a poor man who had nothing except for the one small ewe lamb that he had bought with, with his money. That's all he had to his name. So a visitor comes into town to the, poor, to the rich man's house, and, and instead of taking one of his own animals and sacrificing it and, and using that to, to feed this uh, traveler, what does the rich man do? He takes the one lamb that the poor man has, and he kills it instead. Now, David hears this, and he's infuriated at the injustice that the rich man had committed, and he said, the rich man deserves to die for what he had done. And then Nathan in this loving rebuke, in this truth-filled, grace-filled statement, looks at David and says, you are that man. Now with his eyes open to the magnitude of his own sin, David sought the Lord's forgiveness. And this psalm is a product of his repentance. And so as we work our way through Psalm 51 today, we'll see that there's joy to be found in true repentance because Christ's sacrifice covers all of our sin, and he makes us clean. David's repentance turned into worship because of God's mercy, and that then should compel each one of us not to avoid repentance, but to continue in it, to do it regularly without fear and with great joy. So I want to read David's prayer here in Psalm 51. Pray, and then we'll work our way back through it. Be gracious to me, God. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that this morning your spirit that you've given to us, who guides us into all truth, will take it and both convict and comfort our hearts with the truth of a God who judges sin, and that's a good thing, but who forgives it, and that's also a good thing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
When was the last time that you said you were sorry and really meant it? How difficult is it for you to apologize when you've done something wrong? As a believer in Christ, can your life be characterized as one of ongoing repentance? Do people see you as someone that's humble enough to know when you're wrong and to apologize for it? So I think we're prone to associate repentance more with our sin at times than we do with God's grace. So when we're confronted with our sin, I think it's easier for us to get defensive or overwhelmed with guilt than it is to respond with repentance. It's easier for us to fight or hide than it is for us to say we're sorry and we mean it. Now, before we go on any further, we need to define repentance, right? I say that word, and and we probably all have a a similar idea of what it is, but we might be uh, slightly... Uh, off. And so I want to make sure that we all have the same thing in mind when we hear this word. The, the biblical word literally means, I should move around more because the lights are going out on me. Uh, the biblical word literally means change of mind, right? But the biblical understanding of that definition isn't simply to think in a different way. It's living a different way because what you believe is how you behave, Right? So in Scripture, the mind and the heart, the whole person, it works together. If your mind changes, if your belief changes, then your behavior changes too. Repentance is a turning of the whole self away from one thing and toward another thing. And so for us, repentance is turning from sin and turning toward God. It involves confession of sin, seeking forgiveness, driven by belief in God's mercy, and then it involves an effort to live in obedience to God, driven by dependence on his grace. And so here's what we need to grasp this morning from our passage. Repentance should be a regular part of our lives as believers because it displays the gospel of God's grace to us in Christ, and it leads us to deeper joy in him. Repentance itself is an act of worship. But we need to know how to repent, and that's why Psalm 51 is so helpful. This, this psalm takes David's personal prayer of repentance. Remember, this is, this is his outpouring from what happened with him and Nathan. It takes his personal prayer of repentance, and, and it turns it into public worship, puts it in a psalm form. So it not only teaches us what true repentance looks like, but it also then invites us to repent along with David in worship Uh, of the God who forgives us and saves us. True repentance involves confession of guilt, a plea for forgiveness, and a response of obedience. A turning of mind and heart from one thing to another. So let's look at the confession of guilt, verses one through five. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. 
It's a deep awareness of who he is in light of who God is that compels David to confess his sin and to seek God's forgiveness. And these first few verses reveal that it's God's righteousness that makes repentance necessary, but it's God's mercy that makes repentance possible. Look at how David describes God in verse 4. Remember, David committed adultery and murder, and those things are, are evil in God's sight because God is righteous and holy, right? We've seen this by now. He's only ever is good, and he only ever does good. He is light. In him is no darkness at all, right? He's perfectly just. He never does anything wrong. In other words, God never sins against us. We sin against God. Sin is a violation of God's divine law, of God's good order, and it's a wicked offense against the only one who is holy and true and good. This is why David tells God, you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. In Romans 3, the Apostle Paul quotes David's words here to show that no one is righteous but God himself. In Romans 3, the entire world is condemned. Nobody gets off. It's got free. The whole world is guilty before God because all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. David's own words are reflective of this truth. He says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Now, he's not blaming his parents for his sin. And he's not saying that they were sinning when they conceived him. He's acknowledging that at the point that his life began at conception, he was already guilty. His heart was corrupted by a disposition of rebellion against God. He has a sinful nature from the very beginning, and so do all human beings because of the rebellion that took place in the Garden of Eden. Further in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, talking about Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Not only did we inherit a sinful nature as a result of Adam's sin, but we've all sinned along with Adam. If we, if we were in Adam's place in the garden, we would have done the same thing. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And so, God is right when he passes sentence, and he's blameless when he judges, because that's what we deserve. In humility... David confesses his sinfulness in verse 3. He says, for I'm conscious of my rebellion. My sin is always before me. When was the last time you heard words like those come out of a politician's mouth? Or big business leaders? Or anyone in the public square? Now, don't get me wrong. Every, uh, not, not every accusation is a, is a true one that, that's brought against someone. Everyone has the right to defend themselves against unjust claims and make the truth known. But when you have a culture that cancels people at even the, the appearance of injustice before investigating whether or not it's true, then you have language in news articles and social media posts that sound like this. So-and-so has denied any wrongdoing. Or, or you get something that, that looks like an apology, but it sounds like this. I'm sorry if my actions caused misunderstanding or pain for anyone involved. You see, it's not true repentance because there's no genuine admission of guilt. There's no real desire to change. At the maximum, they feel guilty about the consequences. What about your words? 
Do they sound more like David's or do they echo your Twitter feed? When was the last time you confessed that you were totally guilty of a wrongdoing without trying to excuse it away, without trying to then lob something back at the person who brought it up? When was the last time that you said, I'm fully aware of my sin that that I've committed, conscious of my rebellion? Isn't it our tendency to downplay or to deny accusations that people bring against us? Who are they to judge us, right? They're no better than we are. You see, whether or not we admit it out loud, deep down we all believe what Paul said in Romans 3, that everybody is guilty of something and nobody is innocent of everything. And so when someone else draws attention to our wrongdoing, our our natural tendency isn't to agree with them, it's to deflect and try to find theirs, right? But try to do that with God. You can't. Why? Because there's no fault to be found in him. He is innocent of all wrongdoing. And so he is right when he passes sentence. He is blameless when he judges because he always judges accurately. Who is he to judge? He's the judge. He's the judge. And in verse 4, David goes as far as saying, against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, we all know that David sinned against people, right? You can't commit adultery and murder without affecting other people. He brought devastating consequences on those people that he sinned against. He's not denying that he has sinned greatly against them, but David violated God's covenant institution of marriage. David murdered a man made in God's image. David did not sin against God exclusively, but he did sin against God ultimately. And so his repentance needed to be directed not only toward those people he sinned against, but ultimately toward God himself. This is the reason why why we rarely see true repentance in our society. It's because uh, society regularly fails to recognize that wrongdoing against other people is ultimately sin against God. See, you won't see the need for repentance until, until there's humility there to submit yourself to the truth that God is God and sin is sin. It's the godness of God that shows us the sinfulness of sin. And when we understand how sinful we truly are and how sinless God truly is, we're exposed both to our need to be reconciled to God because of our sin. Oh, but we're, we're also exposed to God's compassion to initiate that reconciliation even though we don't deserve it. You see, it's God's compassion that David appeals to in the opening lines of this psalm. Listen to the key words he uses. Gracious faithful love, abundant compassion. And then he says rebellion and guilt and sin. These are all buzzwords. These are all words that we should, as as people who've gone back to Exodus 34 pretty much every single week, these words take us right back there again. And those who would read that psalm in, in David's day would know these words 
They would recognize those words and they would think about Exodus 34, 6 and 7 where the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, which is the word that David uses for guilt, rebellion and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. David's plea at the beginning of Psalm 51 is for God to be who God is. He acknowledges God's justice because God is just. And he appeals to God's mercy because God is merciful. He asks God to blot out his rebellion the way a judge would erase something from the record book. He knows that God as judge is the only one that can do that. And then David says, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. These, are, th- these words, wash and cleanse, these are ceremonial terms. They describe the outward rituals that were performed in order for, uh, to allow a person to enter into the presence of God at the tabernacle or the temple without being struck down in judgment. But David knows he needs more than an outward cleansing. And this is where the plea for forgiveness comes in. Look at verse 6. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. And you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Do you hear the the plea for forgiveness here? What God desires from the inward heart of David, David does not have. And David cannot produce it on his own. He knows That what God desires in us, God has to supply in us. And if David had integrity in the inner self and wisdom deep within, he would not have taken another man's wife for himself, gotten her pregnant, and then killed that man. In David's foolishness, he tried to cover up his sin, and in doing so, he only sinned more and made things worse. But, But here he comes to understand that only God can clean up the mess that he's made. And he's confident in God's ability to do so. He doesn't say, purify me, and I might be clean. He doesn't say, Lord, you're my best chance. He says, purify me. And what? I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. As believers, we're drawn to seek God's forgiveness, not only because he's willing to forgive, but because he's able to forgive. We need both. And his forgiveness is is, is both sufficient and complete. 1 John 1, 9, we read this last week. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is able to forgive and cleanse us because his son took the guilt of our sin upon himself. And he died in the cro- on the cross in our place. He absorbed all of God's divine wrath against us because of our sin and giving us his own righteousness in place of our guilt. 
when the Father raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, that, that's for our eternal life, but there's more to it. When he raised Jesus on the third day, it was to vindicate Jesus as innocent. But also declare that Jesus' sacrifice in our place was sufficient to vindicate us once and for all. And our vindication, our cleansing comes by God's grace through faith in Christ and his cleansing work. David is seeking inward renewal here. This, in this plea for forgiveness. He's not, not, not uh, merely looking for outward ceremonial cleansing, but a true change of heart. And he knows that he can't make that happen. When you come to that conclusion, guess what? That's evidence that God's grace is already doing the work that you're asking for. So David prays that God would create a clean heart for him and renew a steadfast spirit within him. David needs God to make him willing and able to live with integrity and do what pleases God. Like we read in Romans 8. It takes the spirit of God to live in obedience to God. This is what all of us need to do. We need to, 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 to seek the Lord and plead with him to make us willing and able. Philippians, Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How can we do that? For it's God who works in you to will and to do what pleases him. After David's son Solomon died, God's people continued to rebel against him. This is the history of Israel. It's rebellion against the God who, who just continues to love and forgive and be patient, right? The kingdom of Israel is divided into two. And then the northern and the southern kingdoms eventually were attacked. They were taken captive. They were, they were uh, exiled from the promised land that God had given to them. But because God is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, he promised to do an internal work that would draw his people back to him in faithful love and obedience. This is, this is a major theme that he did when he sent the prophets to them to tell them, listen, I'm still God. I am not going back on my covenant with you. In fact, I'm renewing it. I'm making it new. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20, God says, I will give them integrity of heart. And put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh. So that they will follow my statutes. Keep my ordinances and practice them. They will be my people and I will be their God. You see what David asks for in Psalm 51. God grants to all of his people. And the promise he made in Ezekiel was fulfilled in the new covenant that was sealed with Christ's blood. He took our dead hearts of stone and he made them alive with Christ through faith in him. And then he sealed us with his Holy Spirit and, and he made us his permanent dwelling place to guide us into all truth and to constantly remind us that we are heirs with the hope of eternal life so that when God's Spirit convicts us of our sin, we're not tempted to hide from God. We're drawn by his kindness to remember the gospel and to repent to the praise of his glorious grace. Last week in Psalm 30, we saw how God sometimes hides his face from us. How he allows us to feel the pain of our sin, not to shame us, but to give us a deeper awareness of his presence and his grace, to actually draw us to him. In recognition of that grace, here in verse 9, David asks God to, to hide his face, not from David, but from what? From his sin. 
God looks on his people with favor, but he looks on sin with judgment. When God turns his face away from his people, it's an act of discipline that teaches them. Think of that word, discipline. What's in there? Disciple. This is a learning thing. It's a transformative thing. It's an act of discipline when God turns his face away from his people. It teaches them not to take his grace for granted. When he turns his face away from sin, it's an act of forgiveness that teaches his people that he no longer holds their sins against them. The same new covenant that God promised through Ezekiel, he also promised through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah's words are similar to Ezekiel's, but God elaborates a little bit more with Jeremiah. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. Oh my goodness. Praise God that those words are in there, clear as day. You know what God's saying there? I will turn my face away from their sins and blot out their guilt forever. Exactly what David prays for. We go to the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. And the author there tells us that God can say, uh, can say this, what he said in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, because Christ's sacrifice is the only one sufficient to completely pay for all our sins and perfect us forever. The forgiveness that David pleads for in Psalm 51, it's ultimately granted to him through Christ. It's because of Jesus and what he did that God can turn his face away from David's sins and blot out all his guilt. Jesus took the guilt for David's sin upon himself and he willingly received the judgment that David deserved so David could be forgiven. We have to connect those things. David doesn't get to God without Jesus and neither do we. When God turned his face away from David's sins, he wasn't overlooking them. He wasn't turning a blind eye to them. He was looking ahead to the cross where he would punish his own son for them because he's blameless when he judges and he's right when he passes sentence. God banished David's sins instead of banishing David and that's exactly what David asked for. David knew his own sin was always before him, but his desire was that God would always be before him. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, he says in verse 11. Now, if you're read up on the Gospels, you know that the Holy Spirit came to dwell permanently in God's people only after Jesus came, died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven. When I go up there, he says, I'll send my helper, right? In the Old Testament, the, he, the Holy Spirit's presence was evidence of God's special anointing and favor. The men who built the tabernacle were anointed with the Spirit. When God removed the kingdom from Saul and gave it to David in 1 Samuel 16, it says that God's Spirit left Saul and came upon David in power. And even though this is a personal prayer of David's in, in its psalm form, we need to remember this is written for corporate worship, for corporate prayer. So those who sing this, aren't, who aren't the king of Israel, they still need to be able to sing these words and have it relate to them, have it apply to them. And the whole tone of this psalm contrasts the despair that we should feel at God's right to judge us for our sin with the joy that we can know when he forgives us instead. 
It leads us not to take his grace for granted, but to appeal to it through repentance because we desire his presence more than we desire sin's presence. If you're a believer in Christ, you've been sealed with the Spirit. God will never take it away. Take him away. But we don't want God to hide his face from us. We want him to turn it away from our sin. David's plea for forgiveness here is not motivated simply by a desire to escape the consequences of his sin. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow, you're grieved over the sin. Worldly sorrow, you're grieved that you have to suffer consequences for it. David's desire, his plea for forgiveness, it's motivated not by a desire to escape the consequences of his sin. It's motivated by a desire to escape the presence of his sin altogether. As you grow more and more close to Christ in your walk with him, your sin should grieve you more and more. That's a good and necessary thing. You should long to be rid of it. And rest in the abiding presence of God. David associates forgiveness with joy and gladness. He knows that God's bone-crushing discipline ultimately leads to rejoicing over the fact that God has not turned his face away from David, but he's turned his face away from David's sin. Now, I said in the beginning that we don't practice repentance more regularly because we, attend, we, we tend to associate repentance more with the pain of our sin than we do with the joy of being forgiven. We don't want to go through the consequences. We don't want to feel the pain that we've caused. But we need to. I'm not saying that we ignore the pain of our sin. I'm not saying that we shouldn't feel the pain of our sin. That's a necessary part of it. That leads us to the sorrow, the sanctified sorrow that we need to have in order to drive us to look at God's mercy and, and repent. A sign of true repentance is that we actually feel sorrow because of our sin and not just sorrow because of the consequences of it. We should never downplay the sin that we've committed or try to excuse away the guilt that we incur because of it. We need to be like David and say, it's, it's there, I see it. I'm fully aware of it. But especially as believers, especially as those who, who proclaim the good news of the gospel as the central uh, uh, proclamation of our life, as the guiding uh, 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 principle of how we live, as those who have already experienced the joy of forgiveness that we received when we first heard the gospel and believed it, we, we ought to remember the joy that came with that and use it as motivation to live in a way that's characterized by ongoing repentance. We have the, the joy of looking back to the cross and see what Christ has already done to remove our guilt. We have the joy of looking back to the resurrection to see that sin's grip of death no longer has a hold on us. We have the joy of looking back to Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father where he currently is and continually intercedes for us until he returns. Read, read further in Romans 8, you'll see that. 
We have the joy of experiencing the forever presence of God through the permanent indwelling of His Holy Spirit who also intercedes for us when I'm guilty of it in our weakness. We don't know how to pray, right? We have the joy of knowing that God will never leave us nor forsake us because Christ's sacrifice paid the debt of our past, present, and future sins fully and finally. We have the joy of the promise of Christ's return to gather us to himself, to usher us into an eternity where our sin will no longer always be before us. It'll be gone altogether. And we'll enjoy the forever face-to-face presence of our eternal king. There's no reason then for us to avoid repentance when we sin, as if we've done what we've done is going to undo all that God has already set permanently in place. And there's no reason for us to continue to punish ourselves by wallowing in guilt and shame as if our grief itself is the thing that pays the penance for our sin. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's our forgetfulness of his kindness that leads us away from repentance. When we remember that he no longer condemns us for our sin like we read in Romans 8 this morning, but that he continues to correct us and cleanse us for it or from it, then we'll seek that correction and cleansing through ongoing repentance. It's joy in the Lord's kindness that motivates our confession of guilt and our plea for forgiveness because we know that God is faithful to answer us and give us what we ask for. And it's joy in the Lord's kindness that motivates then our response of obedience. Look at verse 12. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You, do not, you will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. See, everything that David promises to do here is a response to what God has done. That word then, super key. God, you do these things. Remind me of your goodness and your faithfulness. Cleanse me of my sin. Give me a new heart. Heal me inside. Then I will do these things. And as the king of Israel, David's also a teacher of Israel. And as the one who rebelled against God but experienced the joy of God's salvation, he would remind God's wayward people of God's righteousness and compassionate ways. And they too then would come to know the joy of salvation and return to the Lord. Do you hear that word, return? You know what that is? It's repentance. They're stop, stopping going this way and they're turning and going this way. They're remembering and believing what they once knew and forgot. They're turning away from their sin and they're turning toward God. 
The joy of knowing that God had saved him from the guilt of murder prompts David to sing of God's righteousness and declare God's praises. Not every worshiper who sang this song was guilty of, of murdering someone as, as David was. But they could praise God nonetheless as the God who forgives even the most grievous sins. And as those whom Christ has been revealed to us, yes, we have not maybe personally, physically committed murder in our lifetime here. But we're all guilty of bloodshed because our sins put Christ on the cross. And it's because of the cross that we can sing of God's righteousness to condemn sin and of his grace to forgive it. And as those who have the joy of salvation through the good news of the gospel, we can now teach the rebellious the saving ways of God by proclaiming that gospel and calling them to repentance. Verses 14 through 17 describe activities of public worship at the tabernacle or the temple. They come and they gather together and they sing praises to God. They offer sacrifices to God of dedication. But David makes it very clear that God is not pleased with outward practices unless they come from inward penance. Slaying a bull or a lamb or a goat means zip. without a heart that is made new. A bull broken and burned on the altar had little value unless the one who offered that sacrifice did so because his own heart had been broken. His own heart had been humbled by his sin and he was truly seeking God's forgiveness through genuine repentance. You desire integrity in the inward being, David says. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs could not secure the permanent forgiveness that we ultimately needed, so they had to continually shed blood over and over and over. If your sin is always before you, think about the number of animals that had to die. It took the blood of Christ to secure the permanent forgiveness that we need. His sacrifice The son's sacrifice is the only one that the father delights in permanently because it was the only one offered perfectly. And so we no no longer need bulls and goats and lambs. Aren't you thankful for that? But we do still need a broken and humbled heart. This is pleasing to the Lord because it shows our recognition of our need for him. And in his his good pleasure, he's given us his own son to meet the need that we so desperately cry out for. You see, our, our obedience is a response to the God who delights in the righteous sacrifice of his son and saves us by his good pleasure. It's a response to the gift of his grace. We could spill the blood of every last bull and goat and lamb in this world and never please God more than Jesus has done on our behalf through his own blood. Praise God. God is pleased with us when we are pleased to rest in the finished work of Jesus. And we do that through repentance. By turning away from our sin and turning toward Christ in faith. Maybe you've never done that. Why not do that today? Why not confess that you're not God and that you need God? 
See, humility makes us conscious of our rebellion. Pride makes us deny it. But maybe you are conscious of your rebellion, and that's exactly, that's actually what's keeping you from repentance. Maybe you feel like there's no way God could forgive you for all that you've done, and you have to clean yourself up before you come to him. I pray this morning that you would find relief in knowing that it's not your job to clean your heart. You'll never do it. It's your job to confess your sin and your need for Christ to make you clean through the forgiveness that only he can bring. And here's the the beauty. God will not despise a broken and humble heart. He won't look at you in your mess and go, this is ridiculous. Christ puts it this way in John 6, 37. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. I won't turn my face away. In Luke 15, Jesus says that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need it. You have no excuse not to. Why not be that one sinner? Everyone in here who believes in Christ was and is. Let David's words in Psalm 51 guide your heartfelt prayer to God this morning. If you don't know what to pray, there it is. Listen, God forgave David. God forgave me. He'll forgive you. We all need repentance. Not just once, but as a regular way of life. As individual followers of Christ... We need to understand this, that that we each contribute to the health of the whole body of Christ through our own ongoing confession and repentance. Not just privately to God, but visibly to one another. Our sin is ultimately against God, but it's never exclusively against God. Because we live among each other. So when we sin against a brother or sister in Christ, we need to approach him or her with a heart of repentance and confess that sin and seek his or her forgiveness. We don't say, listen, I'm sorry if what I did, you know, hurt your feelings. Sorry that you misunderstood that. No, no, no. We say, look, I am conscious of my rebellion. What I did, what I said was wrong. It was hurtful and sinful. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against our Lord. Will you please forgive me? Now the best way to teach repentance is to do it. So this week, I want you to think, I hope the Lord is stirring in your heart from from his word here this morning. People that you need to, to go actually say these things to. Or something in your life that that you need to repent of directly to God for. Let Psalm 51 guide your prayers and your practice this week. Parents, do it with your children. Husbands and wives, do it together. Church leaders and church members, 
When we practice repentance with one another, it allows us both to show and speak the glorious truths of the gospel and to encourage one another toward greater dependence upon Christ and greater confidence in Christ. It gives us regular opportunities to forgive and to be forgiven, and it helps us guard against taking God's faithful love and compassion for granted. It should never get old. Repentance should not be something that we did once when we first believed. It should be a regular part of our lives because it displays the gospel of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ, and it leads us to deeper joy in him doesn't just lead us to worship, it is worship. As followers of Christ, we should be the sorriest people on the planet. Not because we're the saddest, but because our sorrow has been sanctified. Because we understand what that sorrow leads to. Because we model true repentance for everyone else who doesn't know it. So let's continue to confess our sin. Let's continue to, to, to plead for forgiveness and let's respond with obedience, not because we have to earn God's grace, but because he's already given it to us. Amen? Jesus, we thank you that we can proclaim these words as true. That what David prayed for, we now know in its fullness because we know you. I pray for us this week, that you in your spirit, in your kindness, by your word, through a brother or sister in Christ, would walk us through this worshipful act of repentance from something that, that maybe even seems so trivial to, to maybe the most grievous sin. You're the God who forgives all of it. Draw us near to you through your Son, in joyful repentance this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.